Welcome to the Business of You podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gogos. This podcast is dedicated to helping you uncover how to turn your big idea into big business and grow your personal brand into the business of your dreams. Each week, I'll talk to founders of all kinds of businesses, exploring how they launched and grew their companies. Behind every successful business is an epic journey, one that can serve as a roadmap to help you grow yours. The Business of You is all about frank conversations and unique business wisdom for the entrepreneur. It's a chance to tune into the story behind the brand and retrace the path of those who walked this road before you so you can pave your own road to success. Welcome to The Business of You. Hello, hello, dear listeners. Today's guest is Emily Pesci, and she is the CEO of a company called June, whose mission it is to make mental health care and well-being accessible and effective for 13 to 24-year-olds. Boy, do we need this today. Emily has over 20 years of experience across healthcare, e-commerce, grocery, supply chain, technology, mobile, and cloud computing, with her primary experience being from Amazon and another company called Nerdy. Emily is also an investor providing early stage capital to over 30 companies. She graduated from Duke University and she received her MBA from NYU Stern School of Business. Emily has a really interesting take on company culture as well. Uh, One that I think many of us founders could learn from. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Business of You and take something away of great value that Emily shares with you today. Emily, welcome to The Business of You. So great to have you on today. It is awesome to be here. So excited. Yeah, me too. We've we've already been chatting a good bit and we thought let's hit record because the time is going to pass without recapturing any of this uh, this great information you're sharing. So while today you're leading a company called June, would love to hear your backstory and how you got to the place you are today. My backstory, I'm not sure, is particularly interesting. I'll, I'll call out a couple highlights and, and talk about how that landed uh, me at June. And I think it starts with my family. Uh, my grandparents were all immigrants. And oh, really? The From thing where? That re- Ireland and Italy. Oh, nice. Uh, so it may not surprise your listeners to learn I grew up in northern New Jersey, <laughs> New York area. And, you know, in those really, really, you know, rich, culturally Irish and Italian neighborhoods. Uh, my parents uh, were both first generation college students. Uh, and so the, the 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 values I really learned as a kid were, were about making it right my, for my grandparents it was all about building independence and and stability and making a future for their kids and and, and for my parents you're know, going to college is the first generation to do it it was about sort of empowering themselves to do the same and that was just a really cool environment to grow up in and to learn from um that I went to college I worked for a while I eventually went to business school uh, I think the the next place that's sort of particularly interesting in my story was making the right decision and joining a company called Amazon, which at the time was kind of a sleepy bookseller on the internet in Seattle, which was rainy. And it was not the company that is so well known today by everybody. This was before Kindle and before AWS and before many things, before many of the retail categories. And so I was in business school in New York City and a lot of my friends were like, why would you move to Seattle to go, what, are you crazy? 
And fortunately, I made that decision because some of the other offers that were on the table were at banks that didn't exist six months later, like oh. Eamon Brothers and Bear Stearns. This was in the 2007, oh, wow. 2008 timeframe. Uh, so I went out to Seattle and, and Amazon was an incredibly interesting place to work. So uh, I basically spent my time there building new businesses or, or new products. So we started with building Amazon fresh from the ground up with an amazing team. So we started in the Seattle area and that was, of course, uh, a grocery delivery business. With Am- First time there were Amazon branded trucks going to people's homes and delivering groceries. This was a, a time where Amazon was generally selling just over one item per order in the normal business. And Amazon Fresh was 26, 27 items. There's a lot of invention and things we had to do that were different. I worked on Kindle and then uh, App Store and AWS and games. As, as Jeff Jeff's kids got a little older and they played some games, that became really interesting to Jeff and to the team. And obviously, AWS had a story to tell for connected games. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience uh, that is not so dissimilar from many of the things your guests talk about on this podcast as it relates to what is a company culture? How does it reflect its founder? And how does that culture then help you make decisions and help you approach problems and opportunities and your customer needs? And then how do you how does a company that was once selling books start doing utility cloud computing in a successful way? And just really, really wonderful to be able to grow up in that environment. I moved back east to be close to my family uh, and started doing some investing after my time in Amazon. And then eventually moved back west because the allure of the Seattle area was just too great for me. I still think that really? might be my Irish DNA, the kind of misty <laughs> rain. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but once I got back here, uh, I was working for a company called Nerdy, which provides virtual tutoring and education, basically learn anything you want the best and most effective way you can through this virtual environment. And uh, that was an incredible opportunity. Company went public through COVID. As you can imagine, virtual education became very important. And I got a call um, uh, during that time about uh, a company called June and what it was doing. And uh, normally those calls come and you kind of just say, I'm having a great time. I like where I am, but I listened a little bit and and the call was about helping support 13 to 24 year olds and their mental health. And I knew a little bit about that. And I'll, I'll say why in just a moment, but uh, that is just such an incredibly important thing. And so the conversation evolved into many, many, many conversations. And so today I, I run this company called June, um, which has allowed me to take sort of that scrappy background that my grandparents and parents taught me and that builder mentality and culture driven execution mentality that Amazon taught me, a little bit of what I learned when I was investing in other entrepreneurs, watching them succeed and and see challenges, and kind of wrap it all into this thing where I feel so incredibly passionate about helping this this group, which which desperately needs it. And um, so that's, that's kind of how my background professionally ran to June. I think the other maybe interesting piece of it is how my personal background led there. And um, the large part of my career I spent like, what am I passionate about? I know my parents, I see my friends. People are passionate about a lot of things. I'm like, I'm building a grocery delivery business or an e-reader or whatever, video games. Like, I'm not even a big video game player. Like, what is it? And then I was late thirties, a light bulb went on my head. I was on a walk with my dog and I go, oh, I'm trans. And that was like Mm -hmm. a lightning bolt that hit me. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I say to people, because I ask all the- late 30s. Late 30s, right? Wow. This is the exact conversation that happens. Did you always know or what? How did that happen? And I said, well, I always was. I just didn't always know. And I, I learned a lot about visibility and what seeing people around you who are like you helps tell you about yourself. And, you know, as a kid who grew up, born in 1980 and grew up in the 80s and 90s, like 
there just wasn't people around me that looked like me. And so I just didn't, I didn't know that about me. And so it took until I'd moved to Seattle and I met some people who were like me for the light bulb to eventually go on. And when it did, it was hard. And we can talk more about uh, what that has meant for me in sort of a lot of different contexts. Uh, but when I eventually got to the place where I was comfortable with it and telling other people and such, it started to feel like, hey, I got to give back. Like this is a place where there's a lot of need. And the and the place where it was specifically uh, obvious that people needed help was was young, our LGBTQ plus youth. And the data on mental health with LGBTQ plus youth is terrifying. Um, uh, one in four attempt suicide, um, not contemplate, not have a plan, not think, try it. Uh, and there's a lot of other data I could share that's really scary. For me, I just, I have a really hard time living knowing that's true. And, you know, like I I feel really inspired to kind of try to help. Like I, my dad used to say a good, a good measure of society is how well we treat our most vulnerable. And that's a very vulnerable group. And it's a group often where sometimes their families or their communities or even their schools now are not supportive of them. And it's a very difficult time to be completely unsupported. And so uh, when the call came in about June, which of course is not just LGBTQ plus youth, it's all youth. And these problems are prevalent across all, all youth, um, boys, girls, racial groups, um, uh, social, socioeconomic backgrounds. It felt really important to work on. And so uh, that's like the, the the convergence of my personal story and my professional experiences into a single thing is what June is to me. And every day I wake up so incredibly excited to work on it. We have hard days at June, we're a startup, but my goodness, is it exciting. And so I have good fortune of finally having had those two things now in my 40s kind of overlap. And yeah. um, uh, that's how the backgrounds have I've evolved to mm -hmm. what I do today. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. It's like your ideal dream job because you can relate to it so much personally, but also professionally. Your past has really prepared you to to work at a startup again. So that's awesome. I think that's right. It's rare to find that, you know, in in career. It's kind of job that sounds like um, you can't believe you get paid for it. You know, it it, it is. And I, I think the the lesson for me has always been that patience was now patience is okay. Like there was a long time where I was like, ah, should I have this figured out by now? Like, what am I missing? And I just stuck with the things professionally that were intriguing to me, which was building and, and being around people who are outstanding builders and learning from them. And I, I guess I trusted enough to get to the point where I could take all that and apply it to something that truly did mean something to me personally. And, uh, and so it'll come. Uh, so if you're, you know, in your twenties or thirties or even forties, like you don't know when it will show up. And the good thing is just to be prepared for when it does. And then, then it's off to the races. Yeah. So true. So true. So tell us a little bit um, more about June and how the business model operates, how you find your patients um, and how you support them. Sure. June is uh, basically a therapy solution for medium to medium high acuity mental health needs for 13 to 24 year olds. So uh, if a 13 to 24 year old is dealing with anxiety or depression or an eating disorder or self-harm or gender related issues, and it's impacting their life, like at school or around the friend group or in their family, it often is time to sort of say, look, maybe talking to somebody can be useful in, in, in working through whatever this thing is. That's the challenge. And so um, a big, big problem that has persisted for a long time now, but has been exasperated by 
declining rates of mental health amongst this population, which we can talk about in a little bit, has been accessed. So like, hey, like I need help. Well, how do I get it? And I, you know, do I look in the phone book? Like, do I Google? Like, what do I do? And so June is a teletherapy solution. So uh, on the client side, so for 13 to 24 year olds, we have an app that you can use on a mobile device or a tablet, and you can execute and go through your therapy on that device, which is very native to you if you're in that age group. It's native to all of us now. And our clinicians or therapists use a desktop experience. And I'll talk more about why they why they do the, the screen real estate helps them bring more information and evidence-based uh, backgrounds and approaches to the therapeutic environment. And so uh, by doing that, there's several advantages. First is uh, we have now disconnected geographic proximity from uh, therapist availability. So no longer does your therapist has to live within 10 or 20 miles of your house. They can be anywhere in your state or any therapist that's licensed in your state, um, if they're in another state, can serve you, which is really useful. 81% of counties in the United States do not have a psychologist for uh, teens or young adults, which is just a shocking statistic. Now, a lot of those are rural communities, but those communities deserve the same access to mental health care as an urban community or suburban community. So that's a, a gigantic enabler. And then the second is we should not discount how critical it is. And and you you I hope you don't mind me saying you're the, the mom of a couple of teens. Yeah, and right. it is difficult for a teen to build a trusting relationship with an adult off the bat, right. especially when the topic is incredibly vulnerable. And so uh being able to do that like in your own room, in your own house, in a place that feels safe to you is a game changer. It's a lot different than your parent driving you to a office in a strip mall and sitting outside the door of that office in a strip mall where you're talking to an adult you don't know in a room that feels unfamiliar. And so uh, part of access is also like a ability to trust and, and and build a relationship with the person that's on the other side of our case, the screen. And so uh, teletherapy has, has proven to be really interesting and effective there. And then finally, uh, when we bring technology to therapy, what we can do is we can bring technology to the in-between experiences. So after your therapy session is over, your live session where you're talking with another human, uh, June can help follow up with things like, you know, let us tell us about your mood or journal, or here's a skill we'd like to help you uh, learn and, and, and practice so that maybe it's a skill on resilience or grounding or something like that. And so kind of the therapy continues between session. And what we see is that really impacts the overall effectiveness of therapy. And so from our perspective, what we're trying to do is create the most effective environment where teens can get the care that they need and the, and the reduction in symptoms or the recovery rates they need. So therapy doesn't have to go on forever. And there's a whole bunch of pros to that. One is it's expensive, can be expensive. Of course, insurance can be involved as well, but also there isn't if there are not infinite therapists. So the more effective we can make a therapist and the quicker that they can get their client to an appropriate recovery for whatever their symptoms are and wherever they started, the next person that they can then go help. And so it really, that's another input to the access problem is, is, is making therapists as effective as possible. So uh, I'll stop there. I hope that answers the question, but generally that's how, how June works. And um, oh, I, you did ask one other part, I forgot. Let me answer this. How do we find customers? Really interesting question. They find you. They do <laughs> often. And unfortunately, they do in crisis. And that's something we need to fix as an industry and as a society. It should not be that there is a self-harm event or anxiety or depression has gotten so bad the school has called home and said, I'm sorry, we, we can't handle this anymore. Uh, 
but that is often what happens. So there's a, a moment of crisis and then there's a scramble. And so we tend to do our best to show up in those moments and the ways people then search for help. We would hope in the future that folks are willing to be a lot more proactive in how they think about investing in their own mental health. By the way, if I were to ask you what health means to you, you might say, oh, health is fitness and being in shape and eating well. Those are all positive things. When I ask people what mental health means, they often think, oh, like you've got a problem or an issue or it's a bad thing. Mental health is just health. Like we should think of it as a very positive investment in yourself. There's nothing bad about it. It's great. And so we need to get people to that mindset. And there's still, unfortunately, a tremendous amount of stigma that exists around it. In our case, one of the reasons we focus on 13 to 24 year olds, many other companies do not, is it's a unique case. We'll talk about other reasons later if, if you so desire. But one of them is there's multiple constituents. We have the client themselves, the kid, but we always, well, almost always have their parent as well. And like the stigma that can exist generationally, generationally there can be very different. And how do we both sell a kid and sell the parent that this is the right solution, if it's the right solution? And very different conversation. Um, and so I think that uh, your question about how, how we show up, where we're found, is a really interesting one because... I don't think our business yet is one where when your family has a great experience with June, you run around your neighborhood saying, hey, my kid was self-harming and they're better now. Like the word of mouth thing is not something we get for free. So we have to be really thoughtful innovators and inventors in how we help people learn June's there to help them. And uh, I love that as a challenge, but it is certainly a challenge in our space. Yeah, especially when you have to speak to two different demographics, like right. you said, the the teen and then the parent, because that messaging is very, very different. Yep. Um, do you think that, because my personal feeling has always been that when working with a therapist, it's really great to see them in person because they can read body language, maybe get a different feel for somebody's energy levels than they do through a screen. I totally hear the points that you're saying um, and can see the validity of them of like, oh, but this is how teens communicate. But I'm just wondering if there's any data or just anecdotal data even on um, having the screen and the effectiveness of it, the screen between the two. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I will do my best not to say anything that I shouldn't. Uh, we have so many experts on our team who have spent their careers uh, researching and studying psychology generally. But I'll, I'll say the following things about that. Of course, like being in person is different than being uh, across from somebody on a screen as we are today. Uh, and so we shouldn't, I would never, and we shouldn't dismiss that. With that said, everything we do at June, uh, we we do from sort of a, a place of clinical um, uh, uh, research and study. Uh, we use sort of evidence-based approaches. Uh, we try to stay really grounded in what works. And, and as such, we measure everything we do. And so the one way I could answer your question is to say, when we measure the outcomes on our platform, and so ex as an example, one way to measure an outcome on our platform is to say, uh, a client showed up with a certain severity of symptoms. So it could be a clinical severity. It could be a severe, like beyond clinic, like a severe severity. Um, and that's measured by a very standard way. It's a, it's a way that a psychologist would measure whether they be in person or, or over sort of a teletherapy session. And we look at the recovery rates, how like as you, as you retake the survey that has determined that level, that severity, how are we as a, as a team, us and you, 
uh, uh, working to get that recovery rate below that that initial threshold you showed up with, or maybe a, another threshold on the way down to a place where you feel a lot better. And uh, our recovery rates are, you know, I think best in class, best in world. Uh, uh, we 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 exceed sort of what we believe to be the what we see to be the um, published standards, sometimes by a very wide margin. So as an output metric, I could say the data suggests that we can actually be extraordinarily effective in this teletherapy context. Um, is there a, a world where if we can bring that extra sort of realness to to our sessions could maybe we could be even more effective and if you know as i like to think like 100 years from now people will still want great mental health they will want to feel better faster and not pay a lot and have access that's a durable need nobody will care how it's delivered and it's definitely not going to be delivered in zoom or meet right it'll be something you plug into your head or something else so we remain stubbornly agnostic about how we deliver it so we'll always look for the best next version of this because we're not in the we're not a technology company we're a mental health company so uh, i agree i think as innovations happen um we will embrace them it's not anytime soon but i was watching the apple vision pro release which happened recently and thinking look interesting like you know vrar is a thing it's been a thing for a while we sh you know i don't think it's ready there's no install base it's not br broadly acceptable but like as people like apple show up to that market what in the future 10 years down the road does this offer us as a mental health care provider, what opportunities or innovations does this offer us? And so we try to remain pretty open-minded about that, but fantastic question. And I uh, think we can still do an outstanding job in this model, um, but we would always look to do better, of course. Yeah, yeah, totally. Do you, well, let me rephrase that. How do you involve the parent in, um, in the ways that you're working with teens? Is it by the teens um, permission or is there certain certain aspects where a parent does need to, you know, give consent or, you, you know, things like that? I'm wondering. Sure. About. Yeah. There are, uh, uh, first of all, the formal things you need to do, like, so depending on the state and the laws that exist in the state, often there is a requirement for the parent to consent to their child receiving therapy. So we obviously adhere to all of those things. Um, there's a very practical issue of how does how do our therapists receive compensation? So therapy costs money and uh, often the parent is usually the provider of that money or the a parent's health plan. So they're usually involved from that perspective. And then of course, before therapy begins and sort of them getting to know June, we're always happy to talk to the parent and the family as a whole and address sort of what we can do to help and how we want to be sort of a, a support in, in getting your family to a place that feels uh, a lot better than the moment of crisis, which if you talk to families in that moment, it's it's like it of all the product interviews I've ever done in my life, it's the one that makes me most emotional. Like, I, like you just want to help and show up because it's a very difficult moment for families. You know, imagine as a parent going to sleep at night wondering who's going to wake up in the morning. Like that is a very, very, very distressing time. Um, and so it's good and important for people to know there are others out there willing to help them and be there for them and that they're not alone. Um, so we, uh, once therapy begins, we'll do uh, check-ins. So we'll have like, it could be once a month, we'll get uh, a therapist, the, the client and the parent together to check in and see how things are going. Um, but fundamentally, the therapy is between the client and the therapist. And it's incredibly important that we, you know, maintain that private, trusted sort of capsule, if you would, um, because that allows the kid 
to, to be vulnerable, to have the conversations that they need to have that they may feel uncomfortable having in any other sort of interaction in their life. And that is that, that honesty, that ability to trust is really an important step towards getting to the recovery we were just discussing. So um, we engage parents. They're very much a customer, if you would. Uh, they often need su support. I mean, in some cases also need therapy, which we currently don't provide, but um, we can refer out to. Uh, but we would you know, be remiss not to acknowledge that uh, our product serves more than one human. And um, you know, we're always trying to be thoughtful in how we evolve and, um, and build our product to meet the needs of sort of the ecosystem, the family, the community that sits around the place where we're, uh, we're doing the direct interaction. Right, right. Um, is June, I know it's available probably, well, for sure nationwide, I'm guessing maybe through for licensing purposes, you can't work with teens that are not in the United States. Is that right? We are still a young company, so we are not nationwide. Yeah. We're currently in okay. seven states. Uh, we got oh, a bunch more okay. to go. Um, and uh, the licensing issue that you mentioned is an interesting one. So uh, we effectively to provide therapy to a client you as a therapist need to be licensed in the state that that client is currently in. So if I'm a client, I live in Washington state. If I'm a client sitting in Washington state, my therapist has to be a Washington state licensed clinician. Uh, so um, what, what, just to go back to the whole teletherapy thing, one of the things it's done is created access as we talked about, but it only creates access within state boundaries. And so one of the things that's happening more generally in this community is a push to make sort of a national standard to make it a bit easier for us to sort of smooth out the supply demand imbalances across different communities at a nationwide level instead of just the state level, although the state level is a great start. Um, the states we're in are just intentional as we grow. Uh, serving 50 states is different than serving, let's call it, you know, we're a little bit less than 10, but 10. So we um, at June think a lot about earning the right to do things at our size. And uh, what we want to is earn the right to open another big batch of states. There's not anything between us doing that other than our ability to prove to ourselves that we can operate and deliver a quality of care that we expect for our clients. By the way, our clinicians are as much our customers as our clients are. And so as we prove that to ourselves and we earn the right, we'll go to more states. Uh, your question was initially about globally. Of course, mental health is not just an issue here in the United States. And we would certainly have ambitions to serve people throughout the world. That is something we definitely have to earn the right to do. And we are yeah. far off from, <laughs> from earning that particular right. Right, right. That earn the right, the way you phrase that, I have not heard that from um, a CEO before. That's really interesting. So what what does that look like inside June? What is the what is the criteria to earning the right to do something around expansion? Yeah, I think this is like an incredibly. I, I this is my opinion. Uh, my yeah, opinion is yeah. one way. I don't know. We'll see if it's successful or not. It's something I learned at Amazon and other places that I've been, but. The way I think about building a business is this, you sort of want to identify a big durable need. So, you know, in our case, like in a hundred years, people will still have a mental health need and will still want the things I mentioned before, which is great mental health at a reasonable price that's personalized to me that I can access right away, blah, blah, blah. They won't care how they get it, but they'll want it. Bezos used to say to us at Amazon all the time, like, in a hundred years, he's like, do you, how many of you think you work at a technology company? We like sheepishly raise our hands. You're like, you don't. And we're like, all right, Jeff, what do we, what do we work for? And he goes, a hundred years, nobody's going to be asking for higher prices, worse selection and terrible customer service. 
He goes, but nobody will care about the internet, right? That'll be an archaic, slow technology. You are not an internet company. You are a low prices, great selection, awesome customer service company. You happen to be using this amazing thing called the internet today to do those things better than has ever been done before. But keep your mind open, be agnostic to how you deliver that. So that's thing number one you want. You want a big, durable need. Um, and then you want to take that and turn it into a broad, ambitious vision. So like at Amazon, it'd be the world's most customer-centric company. At June, maybe we could say the world's most trusted mental health company. Something big and, and, and ambitious and important. Uh, but what you have to recognize then, and this is where I think the real the rubber meets the road, if you would, you have to look at resources that you have and say, that vision is completely unattainable to me. Like if I go tell a team of 10 or 20 or 30 people, we're going to be the first most customer-centric company, go. Like they're going to run in 10, 20, 30 different directions and you will never accomplish anything. So then you try to go find and execute a tractable problem, a tractable opportunity for your team size that starts to step you into that big, broad vision. So at Amazon, Amazon started selling books. And there was a reason why. And this is not the, there's plenty of other people who could speak more, more thoughtfully to that than I am. For June, our tractable problem was 13 to 24 year old medium to medium high acuity mental health. We thought we could we could help there, and we had a major change happen that gave us an advantage. COVID showed up. This is not about the mental health of youth. That was actually changing in back in 2011. This is about what COVID did for therapy. It created teletherapy. Like teletherapy wasn't a thing. People didn't know what Meet or Zoom or anything was. Well, most people didn't until COVID showed up, and so the door cracked open a little bit in healthcare. It gave us something new, which is the ability to deliver care over the internet. So our tractable problem was how do we deliver care to this audience in this new modality? And then that becomes very tractable for a team because you go say, how, like what the pieces of that are, we need a video session and we need to acquire customers. And then we need to, you know, we need to bring the evidence to that session so we can create a better outcome. And so then you, you kind of, Stick that to, and this is a very Amazon thing, but some sort of flywheel that describes how you grow. And the important things about flywheel are you as a company understand the inputs that grow your business. Everybody always focuses on the outputs. What's my revenue? What's my profit? How many customers do I have? If I go tell you as an engineer, a software developer, hey, we need to grow revenue. What do you do? Like you just get frustrated. You do not have agency in that particular request. But if I tell a software engineer like, hey, we need to grow, we need to build products around this thing, like what I, I want you to control your inputs, I want you to build three different features in the next three months, like they can control that. Whether the features work or not is irrelevant. You have to believe the outputs will show up. And so you build a flywheel and you say, well, how does our, how do we input that flywheel? So for us, the more clients we have, the more clinicians we'll get, because the more clinicians will say they'll want to serve clients, right? The more cl uh, clinicians we get, the more selection we'll have. And the more selection we have, the better matching we can do between clinician and client, which helps with those problems of trust and, and, and building that relationship early on and talking to a therapist who you think can relate to you because maybe they've lived part of your lived experience. They look like you or they sound like you. So, and the more selection and the better matching we do, the better outcomes we have. The better outcomes we have, the more clients we have. And so that starts to spin a little growth flywheel. And then that growth flywheel spits out assets. So it, that asset could be data. It could be how we understand the therapeutic environment. It could be people we hire. It could be patents we, we go find. It could be all kinds of different things, but it spits out 
stuff. I like to think of our company as a giant plastic bin collecting Lego bricks. And those Lego bricks are all assets. And those assets are what earn us the right to the next thing. So then you, you, you take the loop of the whole story I just said, and you go back to the vision to be the world's most trusted mental health company. Now, that didn't say anything about age. It didn't say anything about acuity. It didn't say anything about what mental health means. Low acuity, medium acuity, high acuity, behavioral health. Like, all it said is, wow, we've got this Lego bin of assets and we see this opportunity growing. We know a lot more about it. We've now earned the right to take these few things, put them together in a new way and maybe serve parents for therapy or maybe serve low to no acuity for teens and young adults. Um, this is very much like how Amazon went from books to CDs and DVDs and video games. They looked a lot like books and Amazon earned the right as it proved out its books business to go do those other things. And then they accrued more assets and they earned the right. So we try to do is we try to build big vision, big durable needs. So, you know, it'll last tractable problem for the team of its size, spin off assets. And those assets, when you look at them, they are your right to go do more. And, uh, uh, so that's, you know, what we try to think, we try to, we want to go change the world and we want to do it in a way that feels approachable and gives us agency given whatever our size is. And so yeah. um, that's how I like to think about company building. And that's a lot yeah. of what I learned at Amazon, but I think it's what's working really well for us at June. Yeah, no, that's, that's actually a great um, framework or, or methodology, Emily. I don't know if you've, you've thought about expanding upon that in, in some way around your personal brand, but we can talk about that too a little bit. But I do want to go back to your, because we were talking about this even like pre-recording, 2011, until today when we were speaking, I really thought that mental health um, issues were exacerbated due to COVID and in, in the teen demographic, the 13 to 24 demographic. But you said it was really a, closer to 2011. So can you share what happened in 2011 or started to happen and and why that's impacting kids the way it is today? Yeah, um, I'm just going to read you a couple things. And these are things that I as a human being read. And I just like it, it feels unacceptable that they're true and it hurts me that they're true. <laughs> it's what inspires me and the whole June team every day to work on what we're working on. Um, nearly all indicators of poor mental health and suicidal thoughts and behaviors increased from 2011 to 2021 in this group. In the 10 years leading up to the pandemic, feelings of persistent sadness and hopelessness, as well as suicidal thoughts and behavior, increased by 40% amongst young people across every racial and ethnic group. Almost three in five girls experienced persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. And more than one in four seriously considered attempting suicide. More than half of LGBTQ plus youth experienced poor mental health during the past month. Nearly 25% attempted suicide in the past year. It is unbelievably sad and problematic. And uh, it started really around 2011. The pandemic did not help, but it is definitely not the root cause of what's going on. There are many, many studies ongoing about what happened, and I think everything is still very much a hypothesis, although we're starting to see correlation amongst a couple things. So many of the traditional predictors of poor mental health amongst this population, things like 
poverty, bullying, abuse, parental substance abuse, those sorts of things are relatively unchanged over the period and have been for several decades. So it doesn't seem like those are the, the, the cause of this, this dramatic change. There are two things that have not remained uh, static. There are two things that are growing as rapidly. And those two things are the percentage of young people that are spending three plus hours online a day as likely enabled by access to mobile devices and other things. And the second is uh, young people's exposure to adolescent homicide or gun violence. And uh, those those two things around 2011, and obviously the speculation or hypothesis is that that's where we sort of hit the the, the turning point in like saturation of access to mobile devices and social networks and those sorts of things is that that is dramatically and problematically affecting this population's ability to have healthy sort of relationship with themselves and the world around them. And, uh, and so without blame, what we should say as a society is like, okay, this is a real thing. Uh, it's our duty to take this very vulnerable group that's still developing. The brain is developing as much in this period as it does from zero to three. It is the most active time of development in your life. And so what you want is you don't want your brain to start to build pathways and shortcuts and heuristics around things like self-harm when you feel adversity or an eating disorder, because those things persist into adulthood and they're changeable in adulthood, but much, much harder. And so what we want is to equip our youth with the tools that they need to deal with the world that they are now living in. And that world is one that is ubiquitously online and unfortunately filled with things that are very, very problematic in that space. And gun violence is certainly among them. So I could go on for a long time. I'll, I'll stop here. But that's a little bit about in 2011, things changed. I don't think even today we really fully appreciate how bad it's gotten for, for, for this group. Uh, the, the Surgeon General of the United States has called it like, like an epidemic, um, one of the most critical moments in sort of our country and our world sort of journey through health. And so we we have to do better. And I'm, I feel very fortunate to be working at June. And I also don't feel very competitive. I want everybody in this space to be wildly successful because I think supply so far uh, lags demand here. We just need a lot of people to, uh, to be successful and helping to... Um, to solve the problem. And I would just, let me end here because it's a lot of like scary sounding stuff let me, on, this, on this point. The good news is like the evidence tells us we can, we can help. Like this is not a hopeless problem. You know, if you, can, if you can teach the right skills around resiliency and grounding and those sorts of things, and you can provide therapy when it's necessary, like, like we can actually, like kids are super resilient and they learn really quickly. And so this is really great news is this is like not an unsolvable problem in the solution set. The thing is, is like, how do we, how do we meet families and meet kids when they need us, especially when it's not in the moment of total crisis? Does everybody really need to get to a point where they need a therapist or where there's a self-harm event or something along those lines? Do one in four LGBTQ plus youth need to attempt suicide before we say, let's be proactive. And so that, that's how we should all be positively and optimistically ambitious about how we can tackle this. Right, right. Do you have any tips or and if you don't, maybe someone um, at your company does for parents that have kids in this demographic? Like if we tackle the um, the three plus hours a day, you know, mobile use ways for parents to kind of mitigate that at home so things don't become a crisis. Um, I would love 
to have you chat with um, uh, June's co-founder, Amy. Um, she has uh, spent her life researching these things. But I will say this. I feel very empowered and confident to say this. <laughs> the number one thing anybody can do is listen and and sort of allow themselves to hear the people in their family or their community and welcome this type of discussion and dialogue. Unfortunately, there is still stigma around mental health. And that stigma is not just like the worst version. There's subconscious stigma and there's like there's group there's like group behavioral dynamics around stigma that make mental health for whatever reason it's a difficult thing to talk about. For me, when I was coming out as a trans person, it was a very selfish perspective. I was like, oh God, everybody's going to hate me. And somebody's going to say something that's going to make me really sad. And I'm going to lose friends or I'm going to lose family. That was my mentality going into telling people. And what I got was like, oh, hey, like I may not understand it or whatever, but I love you and it's great and I'm here for you. And then out of the blue, every once in a while, more than every once in a while, I'd get something back like uh, I'm an addict or my wife and I hate each other or I think my kid might be trans. And these are people I've known for 20, 30 years of my life. And I, like we had never had these discussions. And what I realized in that moment was, I think, maybe one of the most powerful things I've ever realized in my life. And that is like, we're, we're just humans. We may feel very different to one another all the time, politically, or what we do professionally, or where we're from. Or, but at the end of the day, we're just humans, and we struggle with the same core things. We're very alike in that sense. And we are not great at saying that and asking for help. That vulnerability is very difficult for us to reach into and find. And that is a particularly complicated thing in a parent-child dynamic on both sides. When is a parent vulnerable to their kid. They want to be the hero, the rock. And when is a kid vulnerable to their parent when they're worried their parent may freak out or not accept them? There's a political climate today that is unfortunately weaponizing things about kids is like being terrible and horrible and parents are turning their backs on their children. Like imagine the strength that you need to be vulnerable in those moments. So I would say all the evidence-based things aside that Amy could talk about, and she would talk about this as well. What I would say is the best thing that we can do is make ourselves available to each other and recognize that whatever comes out of our mouth is not unique. It is not alone. We are not weird or, or, or broken or anything like that. We're just humans who are dealing with the same thing. And so step one is to just say it. And then you get to start to like lean into it and invest in it and invest in yourself and get to a wonderful place. So I don't know how you control a kid from using a tablet or being online when they're not in front of you all the time. Like that may be something you can never, a battle you can't win. But what you as a parent can say is I'm here for you and I accept you. And if you need help, I will do it. I will listen to you non-judgmentally and I'll find you the support you need. If you need a therapist, I can find a company like you. Like that is, like do not underestimate the power of that very simple thing. And, and I think as a parent, you can role model that by being vulnerable yourself. And, and that's where I think as a parent, you need to be brave. Um, and parent parenting, as you know, is a lot about bravery. Sometimes the bravery is forced upon you, but like, nonetheless, it's about bravery. And so that's, I think, one very tangible way that, that we can all help is just to admit that we're all like this and it's okay to invest in ourselves in a very, very positive and wonderful way. So. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Where do you see um, June expanding next? Is it in terms of growth, you know, state by state, or is it maybe additional services? <clears throat> what is your hope for the next few years? Well, at the end of the day, our hope, of course, uh, everybody at the company wants to build a company, but we feel such a strong moral imperative <laughs> to make a dent in this. Like every life we touch is a life we've touched, and that is so personally gratifying. So we obviously want to uh, to make uh, our care, or June care, if you would, accessible and available to as many people as we can. So I think you'll certainly see us uh, lean very heavily into state expansion. And then, of course, within state expansion, just really serving the giant unmet need within the states, even where we're, we're still in or we're already in. Um, but as it waits to where we go, I, I think, you know, I'd point back to the earlier part of the conversation. I one of the things I like to say is I don't want to have to be Nostradamus. Like I don't, I think it's predictions hard and I, I don't know where we're going to be. I honestly, and I don't want to be judged by being a good predictor because I'll probably be wrong more times than not. So all I'll say is we will be relentless at executing the thing that we have in front of us, which is medium to medium high acuity mental health for 13 to 24 year olds across all 50 states. And in doing so, we as a company will learn something. In fact, we'll probably learn many things. We'll hire many people. And what that will collectively do is show us the next opportunity. And, and we'll lean heavily into that. And then we'll generate a bunch more things and we'll, we'll earn the right to whatever that next thing is. So I don't know what June will look like in five years. Uh, I know the culture. I know what the people, I know what I'll look for in the people and the humans. All companies are just groups of people. They're our most important asset. I know what that'll look like. What we're doing business-wise, of course, will still include medium to medium high acuity mental health, but um, it may include things that we don't expect. I'm not sure if you asked Jeff Bezos himself in 2001, whether he'd be the world's largest cloud computing business, like he would say, yeah, totally. That's where our books are taking. Like, so we want to we want to keep the door open to serving um, this, this great need and opportunity in whatever way um, uh, appears as we as we grow and as the market changes. So, um, and that to me is like the most exciting thing. Like who knows, but if you're well-prepared, bring it on. It's like just a very, very, uh, I'll say this, which is getting a little off, off script here, if you would, but like you hear about startups pivoting all the time, pivot this, pivot this, blah, blah, blah. Great. Like let's, let's, let's actually acknowledge what it is. Every startup is a giant pivot machine. So like every company is a giant pivot machine. So all you want is to is to maybe take the idea of pivoting, which feels to me like a really retrospective view, like, oh, that didn't work. We should do something else. And instead build your company in a way that acknowledges that like that is actually the output of your company, the pivoting. And so like if you flip it on its head and say, that's actually what I'm trying to design my company to do infinite times, then what you've done is you've you've stopped answering the question, hey, here's exactly where I'm going to be. And you've started answering the question saying, here's how I'm going to be wherever it is in a very successful way. And um, I think that is like a really important mentality we take as builders, but also in our professional lives. So think about it that way too. Like accrue assets, accrue skills and who you are and what you're doing professionally or personally. You don't know where it's going to go. I had no idea I was going to so end up true. in June. Right. And then when the opportunity shows up, you go, wait a second. I've got the Lego bricks to do this. Yeah. And then you put yeah, them together yeah. and you go, dang, this is fantastic. Like, and you surprise yourself, you manufacture serendipitous outcomes. Um, and, and I think that is, is 
the most exciting part of being at any company, especially one like June. Um, and not all startups are blessed with such a gigantic market. Like we don't, we don't have to go build market at June. And that's sad because the market is not a great thing, but, but it's um, because we have such a big market, we can really focus on, on that, that, that thing I, I mentioned earlier, that system, the, f- the flywheel. Yeah. Spinning yeah. a flywheel and earning the right. And just, and just building into that giant market step-by-step step as we earn the right to. And I hope we surprise ourselves. I hope to talk to you again. Cause I've, really enjoyed this conversation and I love your podcast in general. And I hope when we do, I'm like, dang, I had no idea we were going to end up. This is amazing. We're here. And, and we can talk about how that happened. But, um, so I don't have a great prediction other than I want to serve as many people as I can, because it's important to me as a human to do, we need to do better as humans and supporting our most vulnerable. And in this case, 13 to 24 year olds, but we're all vulnerable. So all right. Of us. Right. Right. No, I totally agree. Totally agree. Emily, it's been great talking to you. Where is the best place for people to learn more about June and learn more about you? Uh, you can come to June.com. June is J-O-O-N. And uh, we make it very easy for you to uh, request a, a therapist match if you're in the states that we're currently available in, which are Washington, Oregon, California, Texas, Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New York. More to come very soon. Uh, as it relates to me, you can find me on LinkedIn or June or wherever else. I will respond to as many people as reach out as, as quickly as I can. Um, I am the product of many people around me who have invested in me, starting with my family and, and people at Amazon, uh, uh, the early Amazon Fresh Days, uh, um, some investors here in Seattle, uh, Julie Sandler and Greg Gottesman, I should say hi and thank you, who are enabling June um, to be what it is. Uh, and so I really love giving back and I love talking to people and I love colliding like manufacturing of serendipity is fundamentally about colliding things together. So, um, reach out, say, hi, uh, I'm happy to talk. Rachel, thank you for all you do in colliding all of us together in this forum. Uh, I've learned a lot from listening to folks on your podcast and from you, uh, directly. And I I hope that folks have learned a little bit from me too. And I want to learn, uh, from them. So it's been a pleasure being here. Thank you so much. Great to have you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Business of You. If you found a little dose of inspiration or learned something new, please leave a review and share it with a friend or even two. Interested in building your brand and business? Tune in next time to The Business of You podcast. And remember, there's only one you. You're the biggest differentiator your business has. Until next time, friends.